Hello, friends. Welcome to the Rattling Good Life podcast. I am your host, Samantha Rose McRae. Thank you for joining me today. Let's get started. Today I have with me Justin Patton. I met Justin last month at the WACE conference in Sacramento. WACE stands for the Western Association of Chamber Executives. This was the first conference I had ever attended professionally. I wasn't sure what to expect and I tried going in with an open mind. Justin was slated to give the keynote speech the first morning over breakfast to kick off the conference. We each had a copy of his newest book, Your Road to Yes, that came with our conference swag. So prior to the event beginning, I went up and asked him to sign it, which he kindly agreed to. Justin had a kindness to him which was palpable and instantly had an energy that put me at ease. When he got up to speak, you could tell he was excited to be there. Since I had never been to a conference like this one, I had a little bit of a preconceived notion of what these presenters would be like, much like the motivational speakers you see in movies or TV shows. I was not ready to be impressed. But he did impress me. He was sincere honest, and funny, which made me instantly like him. He spoke from a place of hard-learned lessons, which made me trust him. And he talked to us about the responsibility of leaders, which made me run back to him after he was finished and ask him to speak to me for this podcast. So please join me today in welcoming a renowned author, speaker, and leadership and executive coach, Justin Patton. And, um, and we, we are recording, just so you know, but um, I just wanted to take a second and explain a little bit again what this is. Um, so I know that you've worked with Bill for their leadership yeah. program in Gallup. Um, I'm not... That's a great guy. I met, had, that was my first time meeting Bill, was at the conference, yeah. and we had a great flight back and lovely conversations. He, um, I really hope that he makes it to his TEDx talk. Yeah. Hearing his stories and stuff, it was... It was really cool. He is a great guy. Um, but uh, so we have a similar program here in Los Alamos, New Mexico, um, which I'm a part of. And in order to graduate from this program, we have to do a project. And um, I, I think I mentioned that storytell or connection is my North Star. That's what all of my questions and decisions are based around. Love that. Um, and so after actually one of our sessions through leadership, uh, hearing someone tell their story, it was just the most remarkable thing and I really wanted to be able to take his story and deliver it to other people. I even took uh, this quote that he said during this presentation and it's hanging up on my wall now because it just meant that much to me and um, so this is so I thought well as a leader like that's that's part of what a leader does right is you elevate voices and you and you share with others what is pertinent out in the world and I really believe wholeheartedly that everybody has something to share. Yep. Um, I like to think about myself a little bit like Christian Slater from Interview with a Vampire. I'm a collector <laughs> of vibes. <laughs> and so um, that's what led to this. And so I just, you know, after meeting you at the conference, um, it just, I couldn't miss the opportunity to at least ask, you know. Of course. Well, I'm, I'm grateful. So thank you for even asking. Well, thank you. All right. So we'll, we'll go ahead and then just kind of jump right in and we'll get started. Perfect. Um, so obviously you, Justin, are a, uh, an executive coach and you teach leadership skills and you do workshops and things like this. 
Um, and that's where you are now. But I would really like to go back to where you started and tell mm -hmm. me a little bit about how you grew up and the people that were in your lives in your life at that time. Yeah, well, I always say I'm a recovering farm boy. So I grew up on a farm, <laughs> had 11 and a half acres. There were only one neighbor. So it was really me, my sister, my dad, and my mom, and the farm animals. Um, and I knew early on, I was like, okay, this is not going to be my life. But I will tell you, like, what it formed and built for me, really meaningful. Um, I remember the reason I joke about it, I was like, cows would get out and we'd have to go chase them in the middle of the night or early in the morning. You know, we had goats and chickens and all these things, but it taught me a lot about work ethic. Um, I will say working on our farm or working on other farms that my dad, you know, had friends, um, hardest work I've ever had to do in my entire life. So it taught me a lot about work ethic. It taught me responsibility and I thought that I really do also think it taught me a lot about character and about my dad. I always looked at my dad and he was always just doing the right thing. And so I think it kind of formed this mindset of just, just do good and make sure you're doing the right thing. And so I'm grateful for that experience, but I knew that was probably not going to be my journey forever. I was like, oh, I'm going to have to use my mind for something, <laughs> you know, like manual labor in me just did not, did not connect. But um, looking back, I'm grateful for that experience. But that lasted till obviously I was about 18 and then I was able to go off to college and, and do some things differently. But that was really the foundation. We moved to the country when I was eight. So that's all I really knew and um, lived there until obviously I went off to college. What was your favorite part about growing up on the farm? I loved... I think the adventure. I mean, you know, with so much... With having that land... Um, yeah, I just, I think it was adventure that I was always, I was always outside doing different things, but I would also say, I think it, there was something about taking care of animals that teaches you that it's not just about yourself, um, that you have a responsibility to help out, to take care of things. Um, I don't know if I got that then. But I think if you're asking me now to look back and like, what, what did I learn or what was good about it? I definitely think um, seeing the world is just bigger than myself mm -hmm. um, and having to take care of things. I'm grateful for that now. That's, that's really great. And I know that you mentioned your dad. Um, mm. um, I know that he passed away when you were 18, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I obviously growing up was like, okay, I got to do something different. Thought I was either going to go into the FBI or law enforcement. So started college at Eastern Kentucky University. And about that time that I was going off, my parents had raised both their kids. They're finally getting out of the house, you know, and it was their time to live and enjoy life. And I started college and my dad had had um, hemorrhoid surgery. It's supposed to be very minor, get him in, get him out. And the weekend of September 19th, I'd been at college for about a month. And I was going to come home to spend time with my family, but also go to a band competition. And my dad was in a lot of pain. And we thought that's just what you go through when you're recovering from surgery, because we didn't have anyone that had ever been through that. And I remember that morning, he took me to go get groceries for my college dorm room. He took me to get my hair cut. And when we got home, my mom had made lunch for us. And he's sitting to the right of me. And this is when I knew something was wrong, because he put his fork down really slowly, tilted his head, and he started to cry. And that was the, my, um, you know, Sam, my dad was that 
macho guy, didn't show a lot of emotion, been in the Air Force military. So that was not normal for us. And, you know, and I just remember kind of looking over and being like, are you okay? And he just kind of brushed it off like he would typically do. Yeah, I'm fine. This is just what you go through. And I finished lunch, went to the living room. They were on the phone with the doctor. The doctor said, bring him in tomorrow. We're going to check him out, make sure he's okay. And then I got ready for that band competition, said goodbye and I love you, gave my dad a kiss and a hug, walked out the door. And then when I came home, I found out he had died in my mom's arms. And what had happened, she was rubbing his chest because his chest hurt really bad. And I don't know if anyone listening ever had that moment where your heart kind of flutters or does something weird, but that happened. And my mom looks at him and she was like, Bruce, are you okay? And he looks up and he's like, yeah, that didn't feel right. I think if it happens again, we should call the doctor, go to the hospital and it happened again. And then he died instantly. And what we found out was after surgery, they left galls inside of my dad. And so for the month that we thought he was recovering was actually bacteria growing in his body. And it was starting to, he was getting septus um, and it was shutting down all of his organs. And so, um, yeah, that was pivotal moment in my life that really when I always use this line that everything that was certain became uncertain and really changed the trajectory of kind of what ended up happening, where I ended up doing, what I ended up doing with my career. Oh, wow. And you and your dad are really close, I imagine. You know, it's funny. I think we were so much alike. That is when we were younger, I think we butted heads a lot, <laughs> but I think, I, I think that's probably normal for a lot of, you know, dads and their sons, but um, there was deep love there and deep, and my I would say my parents in general, they showed their love through providing opportunities and making sure we had the things that we wanted to do or needed to do, um, you know? And so I, I think he showed the love the way that he knew how. And as I've gotten older now that I'm in my 40s, um, I respect it. Where I think sometimes when you're younger, you're like, oh, I wish I could have had this or I wish they would have done it this way. I think as I've gotten older, I see more of my parents' humanity and I realized they were just doing the best they could with the tools and the awareness that they had. And so I think now I, I really respect the love that he and, and the, the stability that he provided because I think that's the best that he knew how to do. I only hope that my children have that much mercy on me. They, <laughs> It'll they take a while, Samantha. It'll take a while. <laughs> so so um, your dad passed away and... Um, in looking at some of your videos and reading a little bit about your story, um, prior to talking to you, um, you said that it took quite a while for you to kind of regroup and mm -hmm. figure out what to do next. You you abused a lot of that time, mm -hmm. so to speak. So yeah. um, what happened next? What happened? Yeah, next? I always say that you never know how you're going to respond when something tragic like that happens. And for me as an 18 year old kid, I didn't know how to handle that loss that that was that deep and painful. So I coped the only way I knew how, and that was to emotionally disconnect. So I really became, I always say kind of emotionally dead from my neck down. And I lived my way, my life that way for about 12 years. I threw myself into my career. I used my job to try to validate my self-worth. And I didn't have a lot of empathy for people because I didn't have empathy for myself. I don't think I ever really allowed myself to feel the pain, the anger, all of that. That was really a result of my dad's death. It was easier just to shut it. I thought it was easier to shut it off and just move forward because that's all I 
I didn't have the coping skills to know how to deal with it differently. So for about 12 years, I lived my life kind of emotionally disconnected. And I think it affected every relationship, every job. And about 30, I got, even though I had used my job to be a high performer and get results, I got pushed out of a job I really loved. And I just remember about being on the ground being like, first of all, like, how in the heck did we even get here? Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I knew that I could play bigger. But I knew that I kept getting in my own way. And I was like, if I'm going to change this and play at the level that I believe that I can play, I'm going to start having to take more responsibility for how I show up, how I treat other people, and more importantly, how I treat myself. And I had to do some deep inner work so that I could show up better for myself and other people. And I think that was the work that I really did, which I think ultimately... Um, led to me being able to speak across the world and coach all these executives and, you know, and, and really help people in the way that I think I was meant to help. But it's because I've, I, I have such compassion for people that are there because I've been there and I understand that. So what was it any certain instance? Was there something that happened that made you realize these things or take this sort of pivot in your life? Or was it sort of a gradual mm -hmm. thing where you said, you know what, I'm going to start doing something about these nagging things that are in the back mm -hmm. of my mind? Well, I think being pushed out of my job was the biggest one because that was the catalyst. Because when you use all these external things to validate yourself and then it's gone all of a sudden, you're sitting there left going, well, who am I now? Yeah. And then it, there's a little bit of freedom in it because you get to say, well, who do I want to be? And so I got to reevaluate who I wanted to be moving forward and doing it in a way that I thought was going to be um, much healthier. But I'll tell you, the book that really was a game changer for me was the book called A Return to Love, and it's by Marianne Williamson. And a lot of people have heard the, the famous quote. There's this line that's been quoted in a lot of movies when it says, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. And so that's been quoted a lot. But her book is this whole idea between love and fear and how to respond really more from a place of love and compassion and connection um, versus fear and ego, which is, I think, a lot of how I was responding just in life and relationships, not on purpose. I don't even think I, I think once you've lived in that space for long enough, you start to believe that's who you are. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know another way until I was kind of broken open and I was like, oh, maybe I'm the problem. <laughs> no one likes to admit that. Maybe I have a part. Maybe, if I always say when everyone else in life is the problem, you're the problem. And I was yeah. like, oh, I think I got to, I got to own some stuff, you know, <laughs> my part in this. And when I could be vulnerable enough to do that, I was able to start changing some things, but that did not feel good. And it was icky. And I had to ask some friends for feedback and they loved me enough to tell me the truth. And that's why I always, now I always say trust isn't comfortable, but it should always be safe. And that to me is important. Tr people think, oh, we have trust in a relationship. Everything's, you know, feel good. It doesn't always feel good. They told me some things that I needed to hear and they loved me and trusted me enough that, that, that they could tell me. And then, but it always felt safe when they told me, I didn't feel judged. I didn't feel like it was coming from a bad place, um, but it wasn't comfortable to hear. Ooh, bless your friends. Cause that's something that's really hard to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, as a friend, when you love somebody else and you really want to tell them that truth, um, it's hard to deliver that sometimes in a way that does feel loving and safe, like you said, as opposed to judgmental or you have to change who you are. Yeah. Uh, what was that job that you got pushed out of? 
Yeah, so I worked for Anthem, and um, it's crazy. I won't give you. I'll give you like the short story, unless you kind of you ask me for more. But um, I was thinking about moving. I had, you know, I'd done really well in the company, and I was like, you know what? I think it's time to move on in, inside the company. And I applied for um, a job on Monday. And then on Friday, my boss put me on a performance improvement plan, which she blindsided me because once you once you put somebody on a performance improvement plan, they can't move inside the company anymore. And this was an individual that I had a lot of trust with and I felt blindsided. But I think there was so much to that story. I think there was some feedback that she was trying to give me, but she didn't know how to give me. And I don't think I was even in a place to hear it. So it was just like this perfect storm in that company happened. I'll tell you, it took me about a year. I was bitter when I left that job. <laughs> I was not. I was not in a great place. And I remember talking to a famous author. Who now his his name is Mark Golston. He's wrote a bunch of books. Um, great man. And one of his famous books is called Just Listen. But I was having lunch or dinner with him or something, and he he said, "I think you need to apologize to her." And I was like, "Hell no, I'm not apologizing." <laughs> I was like, no, I was angry. And I'll tell you, I stepped away from that conversation from him. And I, um, I thought about it and I was like, you know what? Again, owning my part in the relationship, I'm not going to own what she did. She has to take care of that for herself. You know, that's on her. But there were some things I could have done differently in that relationship. So I remember, even though it was bitter, I got to terms about what I needed to own. And I reached out to her and I was like, um, could we get on a phone call for five minutes? I need to apologize. And she actually agreed. And he said this would happen, but I did not think it would happen. And I remember getting on the call and I just said, I need to tell you that I'm sorry. I'm sorry for how our relationship ended because I really valued our relationship and I just wished it would have ended differently. And she said to me, you don't have to apologize. I would have done a lot of things different in hindsight. And I think just hearing that for me, when I realize when somebody's willing to take ownership for their part in the dysfunction, it oftentimes makes it safe and gives other people permission to do the same. And I think because I did that, she felt like she could do it as well. I never want a relationship with her anymore. But it, I think for both of us, there was a level of healing and being able to move on and not drag that with us everywhere we go. So I'm really grateful I had that, but I never would have had it without Mark. Colt Golston's kind of, you know, coaching and mentoring in my ear. So how long did it take you between the, the mm. time that you sat down with him and he told you that till you actually asked her for that phone call? It's been a while. I would say definitely a few months. I don't think it was instant, but, um, cause I, I think I had to get, I don't want to apologize. I don't believe in apologizing just to apologize. I was like, I needed to get really clear about what I needed to be apologized for. And I knew there was something there. And I am sorry for how it ended because I really, even today, some of the best lessons in leadership I learned came from her. So there was a moment in time where we, we had a really great relationship. And I am sorry for how it ended and my part and in in, in the piece that I own in that. So, so you got pushed out of your job. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, it's time to make some changes and do some things differently. Yeah. So walk me through these next steps. What what kind of led you in this direction that you are now? Yeah. Well, right at the tail end of that, before I left, I had the chance to go, um, you know, back going back to me, I thought I was going to the FBI. Um, so I got to go study body language from a lady in the FBI. And so that was really a game changer in my career 
I was so fascinated for so long with body language, but more importantly, our presence and how we show up. So when I got, when I met this former FBI agent who's out there teaching people and on, 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 you know, on television shows, teaching body language, I was like, this is speaking to me. But, but I took a very different spin. They're trying to teach people body language around how do you detect lies or how do you steal? I don't, it's not that there's, that I don't believe in it. That's not what I think in leadership that we should be doing, right? In law enforcement, they're trying to detect all these other things and analyzing body language. In leadership, I think it's about what is my presence doing and how am I showing up so that I create connection and safety and trust with the way that I show up. And it gave me a point of view that I never had before around presence. And so when I left that workshop, I decided I was going to start my own company. And so I was like, I was still, I was still working full time for other organizations. I actually, when I left Anthem, I went and joined Yum Brands. So Yum Brands owns Pizza Hut, KFC and Taco Bell. Um, game, you know, love the, love that company. But I, um, I was, yeah, doing my little thing on the side, going around speaking, teaching body language to law firms and, uh, and to other professionals, but um, still teaching um, within the company. But when I, when I was at Anthem and Yum, I was teaching communication classes. So that's where all of this, how I got me into leadership is I was like, my point of view was, I think my journey, first of all, about how I got it wrong only made me a better teacher. And now I had some real life experiences about, I, I've been on both sides. I've got it right a lot, but I've also got it really wrong. And let's sit down and talk about how we're showing up. How can we show up differently? What are some things that, how can I help you think differently about yourself and who you are at your best? So to me, it all just started coming together. I think my purpose is my purpose because I got it wrong. It wasn't because I always got it right. And I think that's why the message resonates so much with people. That's really great. And so you were you were teaching these classes within Yum. Like, how is that? Is that a scary place to like teach mm. these sort of classes? No, I love it. Well, you know, so the the part that we did leave out is obviously when my dad died. I actually taught high school for five years. So before, you know, we jumped kind of into corporate. But I, you know, as a high school teacher. I love being in front of people and you better learn how to be really good at holding people's attention. Cause if not in 30, in a kid of 30, you know, students or a class of 30 students, right. That's when trouble happens. And I was, I really studied hard about how do I teach in ways that, that keeps people's attention, that keeps them engaged, that makes learning fun and interesting. I'm a big believer that people that laugh together, learn together. And so I really studied the art of teaching. So when I left teaching high school, I just went into corporate America. I think my classroom just, it got bigger. It just looked different. So being in front of people was never scary for me. Um, if anything, I'm grateful that people are even, um, would take their time and be in a space to even want to hear the message. So no, I don't, I don't get scared anymore. Is it easier to teach uh, high school or adults? Oh, um, I would say adults are easier for me, um, for sure. But they're just big kids. I mean, it's all kind of the same, to be honest with you. But yeah, you know, I, I do. But I love teaching adults. Um, and maybe it's maybe it's only for me because there's even because they might be old because they're older. There tends to be even more experience, and you've been through more crap. You've had more pain. You've also had more experiences where you got it really right. And so there's more to kind of draw on. Um, and so I, I really, I really enjoy those moments. Okay. 
Yeah. So, so what led you to starting your company that you have now? Yeah. So obviously after studying the body language stuff, that's how I started. Um, and then when I was at Yum, I was doing a leadership class for Taco Bell and I was considering leaving and a leader there, um, said to me, if you leave, we will give you the contract to keep teaching this class. So that does not happen for a lot of people. So, you know, earlier um, you said, Samantha, that leaders elevate voices and they, and they also create opportunities for other people. Someone in Taco Bell created the opportunity to say, if you leave, we'll give you a contract. It was like at least enough to pay my house. I was like, okay, if nothing else, I can pay my house payment. And they gave me a, a doorway to say, could I do this for myself? And so I left and um, because of Taco Bell and Yum and the leaders within Yum Brands, um, I was able to go out and launch a successful business. But I don't think I would have done it had someone not opened that doorway and say, hey, this is the door, go try it. And so I'm like, just when I tell people that I am indebted to like Taco Bell and KFC and, and Pizza Hut and all that stuff, it's because those people changed my life and gave me the opportunity to do and to do what I believe that I'm supposed to be doing. Um, so I'm grateful. You know, I, I think that that is so true and, and I, and I can relate to that on just a, on a small level. There was an opportunity I had at one point where I was working for a company that I really loved. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was exactly what I wanted, but it, 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 it didn't offer the, the grown up things that I needed. Yeah. And, um, you know, my boss, uh, I, I is, is a friend, was a friend and, and a mentor truly. And so whenever I came to them and said, you know, this is an opportunity that has been offered to me, I wasn't looking for it, but it's, he said, why are you even asking me about this? You have to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to, to take that step because it's going to be the next step for you. And it's going to lead to so many more things. And I remember feeling like so relieved at that point because I was afraid to say, you know, I'm removing myself from this place. I didn't want them to think that I didn't want to be there or that I didn't like it or that it wasn't good enough for me. But they're just like, no, why would you not take an opportunity to better yourself or to take a step out, you know? But that's really scary, starting your own business and taking that leap out, you yeah. know, to, to do that. Well, I want, to sh I want to kind of talk about what you just said. I think the best leaders to me always will open doors for other people. I, I, do I want people to stay with me? Of course. But if something comes along the way that's right for them, my job's to be their biggest champion and help figure out how do I help support you as you go live your dream and do your thing. And like, to me, that's, that's the greatest legacy that we can leave. And I'm gonna give you two examples. <clears throat> when I left teaching high school, um, it's because I had a mentor that was kind of like my father figure after my dad died. He was in corporate America and he was the one that said, have you ever thought about leaving teaching and coming to teach adults? I, I never even knew that was a reality until someone said, hey, here's an opportunity. Have you ever even considered? And I said to myself, go try it for one year. If I don't like it, I can always come back to teaching. He gave me like, and when I tell you that the day that I, um, I was a poor high school teacher and the day that I started um, my salary significantly increased and it was the first time in my life I was ever financially independent. I never was before then. And so this man and the opportunity he gave me significantly changed my life. And then I, I, I was telling you, I just got back from the KFC conference 
there's a guy in there named his, um, he was the president this year. His name's Keith Cole. And there was a band one night. It's like the big night where everyone goes out and parties. Yeah. And there was a band there and the band was so good, but they were all 15 to 18 years old. All right. And we're in Austin, Texas. I thought they just pulled a local band in and had the band play. Found out that Keith Cole flew these group of 15 to 18 year old musicians from Pennsylvania uh, all the way to Austin, Texas. They have never done anything like that in their life. And they're out there on the stage. It's so good. And one of them later says, this is one of the greatest experience of my life. And, and Keith was like, I know he's thinking you're just getting started, but he, through the opportunity that he gave those kids, like changed probably what they believe about themselves and what they can do in their future. And that's why when I looked at like great leaders, they're opening doors for people and giving them opportunities that maybe they wouldn't have had otherwise. And so I think that's all of our responsibility when we have the ability to do that. So then can you give me an example of when you've stepped out and done that as a leader? Yeah, I think there's, it's, I'm going to give you even small ways of how I think I've done it. Um, here's an example. I just hired a photographer and when I hired him, um, when I compared him to all of his other people that submitted, you know, um, their, how much they would charge me, mm -hmm. um, I worked with him and I realized he's not charging enough. And so opening the doors, first of all, I'm going to market him, but I also sat down with him and I, I sent him an email and I said, can we get on the phone and talk together? I don't think you're charging enough. As a result, I'm actually going to give him more than what he charged me for. But I also want to coach him because I don't think he sees that he can charge. I'm like, his quality of his work is just as good as everyone else's, but he's undervaluing what his own work. And I just don't think someone's even given him that guidance. And I remember early in my career, twice I spoke at a conference and both meeting planners, because they know what everyone else charges, both meeting planners told me that same year, you're not charging enough. You need to up your charges. They didn't have to do that. But it was like, tell, that, and I know that might not sound like an opportunity, but they, they changed what I believed about myself and said, oh, my work is good enough. And, and they helped me um, think differently about it. And then another thing I would say is if other opportunities come up for like my assistant or people that I work with, I'm always reading them on. Or someone says, hey, we have some work. I'll be like, hey, do you have capacity to do this for someone else so that they're making more money? So those are the quick ones that come up to the top of my head. But I think they can happen in really small ways. I don't think it always has to be like, you know, these big ways. I think we all have an opportunity to open doors, whether it's how we recognize people on social media, whether that's um, promoting someone and talking about the work that they did for you. I think there's always little ways that we can create opportunities for people, regardless of our position. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I I think that's lovely. I, I do think exactly what you said. That's what I was thinking as far as elevating somebody and paying that mm -hmm. for that, that same opportunity that you had. Um, it, you know, I, I also had someone say, you know, you need to ask for more money. Yeah. You know, somebody who was trying to hire me, you know, like, you yeah. need to ask for more money on the sly, you know, don't tell the HR, but, totally. you know, yeah. and that was, like you said, that's a way of, of bringing value to yourself to say, Hey, you are working hard and it's being recognized. Um, so in, in your company, how is it that you recognize other people? How, how do you bring forth somebody and say, hey, you're doing a great job and let me show you this is how without saying those words or maybe yeah. saying those words? To them or to uh, or other people? 
uh, to them. Yeah. So I'm a huge, I don't know if it's right here. I'm going to, I'm going to pull something out from below me. I am a huge believer in recognition. So one of the things that we do in my company, um, we have a bunch of different, I have different models of this, but this is an example. It just says you're amazing. And then on the back is there, we call so it's a recognition card. I take these with me everywhere I go. I recognized um, a flight attendant on the plane this past week. I recognized five people at the event that I was at. I'll use these within my own company. So like I am always trying to make sure like that recognition becomes formalized. It's not an afterthought. Like it's what we, it's who we are and what I believe in leadership. Everything I've studied about how to drive an employee engagement, recognition is always near the top. I think it's the easiest, simplest thing that we can do but I think we, we allow ourselves to get so busy being busy that we don't do it. And I have a friend that's a leader in a company and their motto is to find the good. And he said, your job every day is to find the good and recognize it. This is just one way to find the good, right? Through recognition cards. Um, so I think I'm really good at doing that. I also think during my one-on-ones, I'm really good at talking about coaching and saying, here's what I think you're doing really well. This is where I think we need to see in the next week or two. So I'm always really trying to make people feel seen. I'm going to tell you my favorite quote of all time. So if I had one quote that I think will change people's thoughts about how they show up, it, came, it comes from Oprah. I know that's a surprise, everybody. Um, and she said, everyone in life just wants to know three things. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? And does what I say mean anything to you at all? That is it. Everybody. And so when, my, when I write one of these, all it's saying to somebody is, I see you. And who you are and how you show up really means something to me. And so I just try to formalize it so it makes them feel like they, they have something to hold on to. You know. So this is one way. I'm going to talk about clients. If, can I move to clients real quick? Yeah, absolutely. What I'm doing? I have a thing on my website. It's on the back end, um, but it's it's a it's a personalized recognition form. So we do this internally, but we also do it with every client. So we send a client a form, and it'll say, "Tell us about your family. Tell us about your favorite things. So like their favorite snack, their favorite restaurants, their favorite places to shop." And so when we want to do something for the client, I'm not making it up and just sending something that they might not care about. I found out at a recent event that a guy. Um, he 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 really liked this organ this nonprofit organization that helped people that were part of the um, the nine eleven twin towers. They helped people get into housing, everything. So after the event, I made a donation to that organization in behalf on behalf of him. I know another woman. She put Tiffany perfume down there as one of her favorite cologne. Her, it says Cologne perfume is one of them. So after the event. I bought her Tiffany perfume and have it delivered to her house to say thank you for all that you did for me. It's making recognition personal in ways that are meaningful to them. And then on their birthday, um, they get a message from me on their birthday. And then I have also have another one of these cards, but it's actually for the birthday. So we actually will mail it to them. So it's handwritten. And then... Um, you know, occasionally, depending on the client, I'll send like a gift. But this woman, she... Um, her, her found the charity that she really liked was oh, make a wish. And so on her birthday, I made a donation to make a wish in her name and said, you've changed so many people's lives. I wanted to use today to help highlight you and the impact that you've made. But that's an example. It just, we have people fill out a personalized recognition form. And then based on their, how they respond, when we're, when we want to recognize them in a more formal way, we can do it in a way that's really meaningful to them. That's so special. Yeah. We try to. He said, I mean, 
you, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking about love languages right now and how, oh, you know, yeah. whenever somebody has a specific love language, you know, and, and just just taking that little time that even if it's one example, you know, in the book was the you know, folding laundry for somebody. How is that showing somebody that you love them, that you care about them, that you appreciate them? That's how they receive it. And so taking those little small moments to just, hey, you like you know, coffee and sending a, you know, bag of their favorite coffee or, you know, it's something like that. That's, that's so personal. That's, that's really lovely. That's great. And I think to your point, even, you know, and even what I think we have to be, what I try to remind myself of is sometimes I'm so good about doing it for my clients. And I'm like, you owe it to even your staff and the people that you love in your own, in your personal life, if not more. And so sometimes we're so busy trying to sell and make connections business that do we do the same level of effort for the people that are already in our lives? And I try to be, I try to be very intentional about doing that, if not more, but for, for my staff, but more importantly, even my partner, for my, for my sister, my nieces, um, I don't always get it right, but I think I, I think the awareness I get it right way more often. After this big change in your life that happened when you were around thirty, do you think that this started becoming more natural to you, or do you still have to work that hard at it? I'm going to say yes and yes. <laughs> um, here's why: I, I think I was so emotionally disconnected for so long. I don't think empathy will ever be my like strength. It takes me a lot of intentionality, but I'm really good at it now, but I have to, I have to be mine. It takes me effort where other things don't require much effort. It's just who I am. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm good at it, but I'm only good at it because I'm highly aware. And I have this philosophy for myself. When something happens, put empathy before information. And I literally tell myself that all the time. I'm going to give you an example. Someone I was at I was at the I was at this conference and I'm speaking on also behalf of the organization and someone raises their hand in the audience. They're like, well, this is all good, but and then they kind of blamed the organization and said, we need them to step up. And in my head, before I respond, I was like empathy before information, because had I just started coming out with information, it would have come across as defensive. She would have felt dismissed. And so all I said to her in that moment was, I get it. It's probably frustrating when you feel that you don't have the support that you feel that you need. And she just said, yes. So when she nods her head, yes, that means she felt seen and heard. And then I was able to provide information and context about what was going on, what was within our control. And, um, and so so many people come up to me later and was like, wow, how you did that. The only thing that I did was I didn't feel the need to be judgmental. I put empathy first and then I provided the information second. And when we do that, all of us feel hurt. Give me one quick final example. Company hired a female executive. She had no background in that, in that industry. So she was brand new and she was in her first meeting. Someone in the audience is like a stakeholder raised their hand and I wouldn't say challenged her, but said in front of everyone, why should we trust you? That feels a little, I feel like you could get real defensive, right? Because you would almost want to like, I think naturally want to talk about your background and what you bring to the table. She didn't. She put empathy first. She said, 
I get why you don't trust me. I don't have a background here or I don't have a background in the industry. She goes, but this is what I know about you. You trust the people that made the decision. So I'm going to ask that you trust them. And then you give me six months to earn your trust. It was so good. I was like, throw that woman a baby. Like it (laughs) was so good. And it's because she didn't feel the need to have to defend herself. She acknowledged and had empathy and then provided information. So the whole point of me telling you that is I am I'm really intentional about when I hear people in my head. I might be looking at you nodding, but I'm like, oh, my gosh, empathy before information. And I'm li- I, that's I have to remind myself because it doesn't come naturally. I feel like that's rewarded every time. Yeah, totally. So what is your favorite part about the work that you do now? Do you like to work one-on-one with clients more? Do you prefer to go out to these big crowds? Do you like prefer writing? What is your favorite? No, I mean, I love speaking. So like speaking's my jam, okay? So I think the bigger the crowd, the better. And because any speaker, we feed off the energy, right? And I'm a big believer. We laugh together. We learn together. So I'm definitely trying to make it engaging and interactive. So that hypes me up. However... When you have the chance to work with people one-on-one, I think that's where you start to change their life. Um, And so I'm just so thankful that people feel safe enough around me to share their stories, to share their pain, and allow me the space to work with them to help them see it differently. Um, I was... I'm going to give you like the last two weeks. During my keynotes, I often bring someone on stage... You never know who it is. You never know what they're going to say. Um, one person this week um, talked about how they had not talked to their sister in six years. And so we talked, we talked about how do you just go back and re-engage in that conversation in a way that's safe and honest to you. Um, so game-changing. I had someone else talk about losing their child and how, they've, how they had to show up in that really difficult, probably the most difficult moment they've ever experienced in their life, you know? And the fact that people trust me and even the audience enough to be that vulnerable, I don't take that lightly. Um, so I love the speaking, but I do love coaching because I think that's really how you help shift how people show up in their all of their lives. Wow. Working on one-on-one with some people, you know, I... I, I I know that there's uh, this idea that you can reach a lot more people when you're getting up on stage and you are speaking to hundreds of people mm-hmm. or thousands of people, but changing one life so much more impactfully one-on-one in that coaching, I can see how you can get just as much energy and love and feedback yeah. from that as you can from a whole crowd of people. For sure. Yeah. So we're coming up on the end of our time and I want to be respectful of your, your busy schedule, but uh, one of my personal heroes, like I mentioned, was mm-hmm. uh, is Robin Roberts. I think she's one of the most amazing women who lived. But she talks a lot about what her mother says as far as everybody has something and to make your mess your message. So I just wanted to ask you, what is your message and how do you lift that every day into the work that you do? Mm-hmm. So I want to be selfish and give you two, okay? I like to give you a personal one and then a business one. Okay. So like when I think about my company... I think everything that I built it on was take responsibility for your energy. And I'm such a believer in that. I think everything in our life changes when we take responsibility for our energy. And so based on how you show up, you're either earning people's trust or you're not. It's one or the other. So you're either moving towards trust or you're not. And so I think now in the work that I get to do, that is what I that is at the core of everything that I teach people. Call the course whatever you want to call it. Difficult conversations, body language, presence, right? Um, coaching, 
all of it is about you taking responsibility for how you show up and hopefully moving towards trust and earning more trust with other people. So that would be business. For me right now, the one that's probably the, the one that's really resonating with me, um, there's a quote. And it says, use pain as a stepping stone, not a campground. And I love that. I have coached too many people that camp out in their pain and they stay in that victimhood. And, you know, I, I, you might have heard this in the keynote that I delivered, but my mom recently got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so it sucks. We are having very different conversations about what's going to happen with her and how do we support her in this journey and take care of ourselves as well. And um, I realized that if I camp out in it, I'm going to miss a lot of opportunities that I have left with my mom. And I'm just not going to camp out. It doesn't mean I ignore it. It sucks. I feel what I need to feel. Cried a few times about it. But I'm just like, I'm going to use it as a stepping stone and take advantage of the time and the memories that we have. And I'm going to love every version that I get, even if that version's different every day. And so the, the, the model that I would really lean on for anybody, I think none of us get out of life without getting sucker punched probably several times. And just use that pain as a stepping stone, not a campground and not camp out in it. That's beautiful. Thank, Thank you, you, Justin, for that. And I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Um, I'm going to stop our All right, that's going to do it for today. But I hope that you'll hit subscribe. Stay tuned. I've really enjoyed this process. I've really enjoyed being able to talk to different people about their lives, learned what they've learned, hear the stories that they have to tell everybody. And I hope that you found them interesting as well. I hope that maybe this has encouraged you to open up to other people, to ask them a little bit more about themselves, maybe to ask them what they plan to do in the future. What are some lessons they've learned? What they think is maybe the most important thing in their lives. I'm really grateful to Leadership Los Alamos for encouraging me to do a project like this. I'm not sure that this is what they had in mind, but it's certainly what they've allowed me to do. And I'm really, I really have found this space to be exciting. So thank you. Again, I hope that you'll stay tuned. I have some more stories lined up for you. I've got a little bit of work ahead, but I will be back. So until then, see you next time.